Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. There are special Torah readings for holidays. We interrupt the regular reading, our cycle of reading, every holiday. So a holiday that has eight days or seven days, there's always a Shabbat in there. So there is a special Torah reading for Yom Tov, right? So if it's the holiday itself, the first day of Passover, the last day of Passover, first day of Sukkot, last day of Sukkot, when it's Yom Tov, there's a specific Torah reading. There's another reading when it's Chol HaMoed. What is Chol HaMoed? means it's the holiday, but it's not Yom Tov. If Shabbat were the last day of Passover, we would be on a different reading. Chol HaMoed. So Chol uh, is the opposite of Yom Tov. Yeah? So either it's Yom Tov or it's Chol. Chol is like regular. What's Moed? It's an appointed time. So the... So Chol HaMoed. It's, it's Chol. It's not Yom Tov, but it is, but it is a special time. Point it's Pesach. Regular, special time. <laughs> regular day, that's part of a special, day, time. special time. Yes. So you, we have Chol HaMoed um, on Sukkot, mm-hmm. on Pesach, you know, on, on those things that are... Hanukkah has no Yontif. So... No special reading? No, uh, no Maccabees. Oh, okay. the Ma- Maccabees is read. It's an additional reading. It's an additional reading. Correct. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't change your Shabbos reading... For Hanukkah. So the, the reading for Chol HaMoed Pesach is Exodus 33, verse 12. And again, if it were the first day of Pesach, that's a different Torah reading. Right? So that we're clear. Because it's Yantif. Yantif has its, the holiday Yantif has its own Torah readings because you have a service. Right? If it's Thursday and it's the first day of Passover, there's a service, most places. Uh, and a Torah reading. There's a Torah service as part of Yantif. We see this reading a lot. So this is a very familiar piece of Torah for us. One thing to ask as we read through it is, why Chol HaMoed Pesach? Right? Why, why assign this to Chol HaMoed Pesach? That's one, that's one of the questions we always should be asking. If it's, if it's interrupting the regular cycle of reading, which we are, because what book are we in right now? Shemini. Leviticus. We should be in Tzav, or uh, between Tzav and Shmini, right? So we, um, we're in Leviticus. We're interrupting that cycle and putting this special reading in for Chol HaMoed Pesach. And so always the question should be, why did the rabbis pick this one? We, we, shouldn't we be reading something about the splitting of the sea or... Right? Which we do read on Pesach. We read first day of Pesach about, right, part of the Exodus narrative. And the seventh day of Passover, the last day of Passover, if we had a service here and a Torah service here, we would be reading um, the scene at the sea, where the sea parts and the people go through. That's what we read on the seventh day of Passover. So those make sense. Why this here? All right. 33, 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, lead this people forward, but you have not made known to me whom you will send with me. Further, you've said, I've singled you out by name, and you have indeed gained my favor. 
Now if I have truly gained your favor, pray let me know your ways that I may know you and continue in your favor. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, I will go in the lead and will lighten your burden. And he said to him, Unless you go in the lead, do not make us leave this place. For how shall it be known that your people have gained your favor unless you go with us? So that we may be distinguished, your people and I, from every people on the face of the earth. Why? Right, what's, what's going on here? Where are we? What's happened? What's been going on? We're still in Egypt. We are, we are not... At this point in Egypt, or not? Nope. Moses is commissioned at the burning bush. That's where he's hired. But he's still questioning why me. No, he's not questioning why me now. He's already. He's. We're already out of Egypt. Moses done his job. Well, part of his job. So what's happened just before this is the golden calf, right? The golden calf. What, what is Moses doing when the golden calf happens? On the mountain. He comes down, sees what's happening, takes the agreement between God and Israel and tears it up because the people have already abrogated the agreement. So Moshe tears up the marriage contract. Then what happens? Back. He, okay, okay. He, he's going to wind up going back out. It. Why? Hmm? He makes them drink the. He makes the, the blood, people drink blood, the, the, the 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 calf. Right. There's a plague. It's not pretty. Well, wait, wait, wait. He said they've already abrogated the agreement. What was the agreement? I thought the agreement was when they, he was bringing down the Ten Commandments, and they were agreeing to that. So what had they agreed to before? They, they came out of Egypt. Remember, God speaks and the people say, whatever God says we will do, you go handle the details. We, we can't deal. They flip out. Right? And, when, and when did they say that? They said that a few pages ago. At what point in the journey? Right after Sinai. They, were Sinai. they come to Sinai. God says, keep yourselves pure, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to come down on the mountain. Don't touch the mountain. Right? Because you'll get zapped. Revelation, right? So that, so then Moshe, so God starts to speak. God reveals God's self to the people, and they freak out, and they can't handle it, and they say, Moshe, you go deal with the details. We're gonna, we're gonna stay down here. So Moshe goes up. Moshe gets the tablets, comes down. They have already abrogated the agreement. He smashes them. Then what happens? Then there's a plague. Then there's a plague. And then God said, I'm reading the text, God says to Moses, set out from here and lead the people. Before that, God calls Moshe again. Oh, right. Right? Moshe, Moshe intervenes for the people. God has had it with this people. Moshe intervenes. Moshe gets them forgiven. And God says, carve two tablets like the other ones. And bring them up here to me. And God forgives the people and God makes the second covenant. Yes? Moshe has to carve this set. Not God. God carved the first set. Moshe carves this set, brings it up, and God then 
gives Moshe again, right, the words of the agreement, the terms of the agreement that Moshe then brings down to the people. Does he carve it before he goes up or just fashion the tablets? Who knows? <laughs> um, he, so he, when he comes down with that second set, what day is that, according to tradition? Yom Kippur. Oh. According to tradition, that is Yom Kippur. The second set of tablets comes down Yom Kippur. So that is the agreement that is still in place today. Not the first set, right? The second set. Is it the same agreement? Yes. The, the Ten Commandments? Yes. The meaning for me is that, that it's after the shattering, it's after the betrayal that the agreement stands, right? It's not the first idealistic relationship that lasts. It's the one after God has been seriously hurt and betrayed by the people. He's, so And there's lots of commentary about why does God have Moshe carve the second set, right? And it's very much usually along those lines that the first set, you know, God just gave and it's like, you know, so when you're given a car, whatever, but when you have to work for it, there's a different sense of I have an investment here, right? I have skin in the game. And it's also an acknowledgement that sometimes you fail the first time and you do it again. Well, it's paradigmatic for us as a people that you fail the first time. I mean, it's just, that's paradigmatic here. I mean, it it doesn't get more, this being the example of what relationships look like. This is it. Um, And absolutely, it's that the first time we we fail. Do we know that the first tablets that were broken had the the same Ten Commandments? I'm kind of thinking... Maybe God felt, I better say, I am the Lord, the God, the second time. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were unclear um, the first time. We've, we've gotten, we don't, we're not told it's exactly the same words, but we were told already what the first set was. Which was the same. Is this a second so, chance message? This is definitely a second chance message. So after you've atoned, which is for Yom Kippur, he's gone and really atoned for his people. And then he gets the, Absolutely. The connection between the giving of the tablets and uh, Yom Kippur is particularly mysterious and interesting because uh, here are rules seriously to be obeyed under the circumstances because we were so terrible before. And there's a depth of stuff that I can't fathom. I gave a whole sermon on it, one, Kol because it's, I think it's one of the most powerful things that we have. That the message is that we, we are forgiven and we're, we get to start again. And it's that relationship that has remained intact for millennium, millennia, right? Not, not, the, not the idealistic first one, right? God sees who we are. And makes a covenant with us anyway. And I think the, that, that message on Yom Kippur is incredibly powerful, yes. right? That, mm-hmm. that it's, it's, it's only too late. after we have failed, it's only after we have behaved badly that we enter a real relationship that lasts. And 
and, and what a powerful teaching that is about our capacity to be forgiven and our capacity to change and our capacity to hope even and believe in someone even and love them even after they've hurt us terribly. Did I remember correctly? I, I thought God also said, uh, I'm not going with you anymore before the second set of tablets. You're like on your own and the people sort of freaked out about that. Yeah, so Mo- Moses... Moses makes everything okay. Oh, he gets God to back off on that one. Uh, correct. Right, right before this, it has but, saying to Moses, tell but it's not over, right? Because you're going to you're going to see Moses' anxiety here. Absolutely. Right. That was my point. I thought, yeah. I thought the message there was more than the message of well, you you put some energy into the second set of tablets. It's oh, by the way, you know, I'm sort of changing my my outlook and, and behavior, too, from here on out. Um, what, what, what Moshe gets is, is an assurance that God's malach is going to go with the people. Right? Moshe's gotten that recently. Um, now we're going to see Moshe's still nervous, right, about how committed God is to this people. With good reason, right? It, it, it was pretty bad, <laughs> My, this, God says, you know, I, get out of my way. <laughs> get out of my way because I'm, I'm done with them. And I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Well, I'm going to start over. I'm starting this project over with you. Right? So it was pretty intense. And Moshe rejects that offer, right? And says, if you're going to kill them, you got to kill me. And, um, but still, he's, he's a little anxious. Is this also the story of... Uh Forgiveness in the sense that God needed Moses to do this as opposed to God doing it. Moses had to apologize. Is this an apology? The act of bringing up, him carving the tablets and bringing them up to God. Is he apologizing to God? He, Moshe apologizes right away. Forgive them. Right there. He, M- Moshe Moshe. Moshe didn't do anything wrong, so he can't apologize, right? He, well, he's apologizing. He always, he always, it's interesting. It's not, I'm sorry, like, they're sorry. It's, you are merciful, and you are just, and what will the Egyptians say if you schmice them in the desert? Your reputation is going to be, like, Moshe doesn't say that people deserve anything. Moshe uses all kinds of arguments to talk God out of destroying the people. But it's interesting that it's not, they're young, they don't know what they're doing, right? It's, it's not that they deserve it, right? Moshe comes up with all these other arguments that your reputation is going to be ruined. The Egyptians are going to say you brought them out there just to kill them. Is that what you want people to say about you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So, um, so it's interesting that it isn't Zafka. They're so sorry. Well, this generation is they never get to. But that's not yet. I know, but they're because well, they're going to screw up again. Okay. It's not this one. <laughs> they're forgiven for the calf, and and many people say that the Mishkan is all related to the calf. You want to build something, build something right. God gets it that they need they need a visible symbol. They 
they're human and they're weak and they need something. And so God gives them all these instructions after the calf of, oh, thank you, of um, something to build that is going to be appropriate and proper, right, for how to have God visibly, symbolically in their midst. Um, so, so it seems they really are for, forgiven for this. They're going to screw up again. And that's when God says, you know what? They're never going to get it. These people are never going to get it. They're not the ones who can take on the responsibility of building this new enterprise, and it's going to have to be their their children because they're just slaves that can't get it together. May we add paradigmatic and smish to our new vocabulary? Schmice, yes. Schmice, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, All right, so that's what's been happening. So then everything is supposedly better and fixed, and then God says, all right, it's time to... I mean, they, they're not supposed to stay in the desert. They haven't screwed up yet, right? They're, what is supposed to happen from Sinai? They're supposed to go like a four-day journey and conquer the promised land. That, that's where we're at right now, right? So that second set of tablets comes down. It's time to go. They got Torah. They got their instructions. Now... I'm going to take you into the land where you're going to execute that, where you're going to make it so, as they would say on Star Trek, right? So make it so. And that's, that's where we are right now. Yes? Every simple question. You said Torah. So this means two things? Yes. So Instruction. two meanings. One is the Torah here, which is the Ten Commandments, the teaching. And then there's the Torah, the, uh, the Bible. Correct. Okay. According to tradition, Moshe received the entire Torah at Sinai. That, according to tradition, right? So, um, it's what, people writing it <laughs> So that's that's why we always talk about mythic history and lived history, right? That they are parallel, but they're not the same. Obviously, the Torah is written over a thousand-year span. According to tradition, Moshe got it all including the oral Torah (laughs) at Sinai, including the Talmud and (laughs) all of those. And very strong. Right? (laughs) Right? It's a lot to write on clay, right? It's not easy to carry, exactly. You need a big briefcase. Um, All right. So that's what's just happened. That was a very long introduction to this. Um, So Moshe says, all right, You've told me, lead this people forward, but you've not made known to me whom you will send with me. You have said, Moshe's talking to God, you told me, quote, I have singled you out by name, and you have indeed gained my favor, end quote. Now, if that's true, if I've truly gained your favor, pray let me know your ways, that I may know you and continue in your favor. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God says, I will go in the lead, and I will lighten your burden. All right? I'm going with you. I'm going to lead. It's okay. I got you back. And what does Moshe say? Thank you so much. Oh, gracious and wonderful God. No. Because this is a Jewish guy. What did he say? (laughs) Unless you go in the lead... Do not make us leave this place. God just said God was going. God said, I'm going. And Moshe says, 
see that you do. <laughs> see that you do. Unless you go in the lead, don't make us leave this place. For how will it be known that your people have gained your favor unless you go with us? So that we may be distinguished, your people and I, from every people on the face of the earth. Does God say, okay, now you're trying my patience? Mm-hmm. No. Nah, nah, nah. Now what does God say, Bert? And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have asked, for you have truly gained my favor, and I have singled you out by name. He said, uh, Moses, I guess, oh, let me behold your presence. And he answered, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name Lord, and the grace that I grant, and the compassion that I show. But he said, you cannot see my face because man may not see me and live. And the Lord said, See, there is a place near me. Station yourself on the rock, and as my presence passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So I apologize. This is happening between the, the tablets. This is happening before the second set. Mm-hmm. This is after the first set, and this, he's going to get the instructions in a minute to do the second set. My, I apologize. Um, so Moshe says, clearly Moshe's anxious still, yes? That God is not fully committed to this, people. It's, right, it was a pretty big mess. So Moshe clearly is still anxious that God is not fully on board. And pushes, right? So pushes and says, right, you better go with us or how else, and all that stuff. And God says, I will also do this thing that you have asked, right? God gets it. Okay, I get it. You're, you're anxious. For you truly have gained my favor, and I have singled you out by name. Okay, we have a special relationship. It's okay. Is this, excuse me, in the Hebrew, is this you, Moses, a... Are you plural? How, how is the you meant? Uh, singular. So you... Adonai el Moshe, and God says to Moshe, asher dibarta and this thing, even this thing that you have said, I will do. Ki for you have found favor in my sight. So just, just Moses. Yeah. Masculine singular. Be'ad'acha um, b'shem, and I... It doesn't say singled out. And I know you by name. This is the, this is the word for to know, like knowing someone biblically, right? So it's, it's a very intimate term. Um, I don't know why they translate it like this, um, particularly here. I, you know, it's I, I know you by name. Um, so it's, it's a much more intimate thing than the, what our English tells. I know who you are. I know you. Vayomer, and Moshe answers, na et kavodecha. Let me behold your kavod. And what does God say? I will, avir kol tuvi al panecha. I will cause to pass all of my goodness al panecha on your face. By your face, Vikarati Vishem Adonai, and I will proclaim the name Yudhe Vavhe 
lefanecha, before you. Vechanoti et asher achon. Again, this is very difficult Hebrew to really translate, but, and I gracify that which I gracify. Verichamti et asher arachem. And I mercify that which I mercify. What does that mean? I will grant. I'm the power giving mercy and grace. So clearly something about grace and something about mercy. compassion, mercy. Right? We've seen this word before, rachamim. Here it's a verb, right? Mercify. Um, and it's from rechem. It's from womb. The root of rachamim is rechem. Womb. Tell me why. Because the womb takes care of a totally helpless new being. Yes. And gives life. Why is it the root for mercy? Compassion. Taking care of. Well, to tend and to take care of is one thing. What's mercy about? It, it's unearned. It is unearned. Our children do not deserve our forgiveness or our love or our attention a lot of the time. But they get it anyway. They get it anyway because we have this quality of a parent, which means I'm not going to kill you even though you deserve it right now. Right? I'm not strict justice would have me punish you pretty severely for what you just did or how you just spoke to me or whatever. But I have this quality of rachamim that prevents me from carrying out strict justice, right? Because justice means what's fair, what you earned. Your actions have consequences. And if you do this, what happens to you is just, it's fair. <clears throat> Children would not survive. <laughs> Adolescence, for sure, if parents did not have the quality of rachamim, of compassion, of mercy. I don't, I don't like any of those words, actually, for this as a translation, right? English just does not come anywhere near it. It's the feeling you have for the issue of your womb that saves them from you and from your justice because the world has to have rachamim, right? It, it has to. There's a wonderful midrash about God creates a world out of strict justice, out of deen. And it's, it comes apart. It just, it just kind of implodes because it's so hard and edged that it can't survive. And then God creates a world completely out of rachamim. And it's like all gooey and right soft and it doesn't make it either. That we have to have both elements, deen and rachamim. Strict justice you know, rules, um, consequences, and rachamim, and compassion. So clearly... There is an English word for it. Hmm? There is not. There is not an English word for it, I don't think. Um, but, but it is very clear to me, which is why Pam said it, because it is very clear to me that, that it's about you can't earn it. Our, right? Our children can't earn our rachamim. They, it's, a, it's given, it's a, it's a gift that you can call it we're hardwired that way, whatever. But it, 
right? It's just, it just is. They, they don't do something to earn that treatment that, or that regard from us. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth like the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. Twice blessed, blessed him that give and him that receive. I, I can't believe that Shakespeare, Shakespeare must have yeah. been Jewish. <laughs> Shakespeare knew these texts. Shakespeare knew these texts. And it's a, it's a universal human truth. It's a universal. Any single culture in the whole wide world knows that what you feel for your children, your grandchildren, your puppy, whatever, like it, it's not earnable. And it, is, and it is one of the most powerful things we feel, Rachamim. It's one of the most powerful things we can experience. And it changes everything about us. When we are angry, when we are hurt, when we are all those things, when we move to a place of compassion, it changes everything for us. The one who gives it and the one who receives it. It is good all the way around. It's good for everybody. It seems that God is saying something to Moshe here about what God's essence is. You, Moshe's asking, let me see your kavod. Let me see your presence, your glory. And God answers with this twisted business of I will cause all my goodness to pass before you and I will proclaim the name yud heh vav and I will gracify where I, who I gracify and I will mercify. It's like, what is that? It must, it, to me, it has to be something about you want to know me? Then no chen and no rachamim. You know, the, the Jewish rachmanus has that meaning. Rachmanus, absolutely. Rachmanut is compassion. Rachmanus, 100%. So how many times did our grandparents use that, right? Have some rachmanus on her, right? Because that is a quality that the Jewish people have always understood to be a value, we value that quality of Rahmanas. Okay, yes, he deserves for you to chew him out. Right? But have some Rahmanas. Because that's who you want to be. Right? You, I, I just so remember that being a part of my childhood, Rahmanas. It's because it was understood that we wanted to cultivate being people who would have compassion. Right? And not do what was necessarily earned. <laughs> right? Um, Yes. And to a degree, we feel it for all children. Yes. And we see it... At our best. Yes. And even the 11th plague saw it in Syria. So... It, um, I mean, child. at our best, we see it in all children, right? Or, and in other human beings. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, we seem to care more about some children than other children. Right. Um, because that's another part of what it means to be human, unfortunately. And the, the work, it seems, is to live into, if we're going to live into imitatio dei, if we're going to imitate the divine, then we have to magnify and extend our rachamim and chen. And that's, that's this other word here, grace. This is grace. Chen. And that's a word that has been taken from us. And I would really love for us to work on reclaiming that word. Right? Grace is also about what's unearned, right? That, that's a gift. And that, that grace, and we say it in the priestly benediction, right? May, you know, when we bless our young ones on Friday nights, 
Um, right? And we, may God have chain for you. And that is, that is a standard understanding on our part of, of the divine response to, to the universe. And we, I feel like we need to take that word back. Yes? I mean, up until now, we've said you were headed towards Rachmanus when the family has a relationship. But if the father has a stranger walk into his house who violates the law, there's no Rachmanus. He gets justice. But I don't think I'm right. I think, are you saying that Rachmanus needs to be enhanced for everybody? Yes. Well, how do you, how do you draw the line so the society doesn't well, you, you have to do it carefully. You have to do it carefully. And, and making laws is different, I think, from what my responsibility is as a human being to cultivate. I, someone may still get jail time for breaking into my house. I don't have to hate them. Those are different things. Yes. That You still need a system of justice whereby somebody has consequences or else society crumbles. Right. But I can have Rahmanis on that person. I can say... Here's, they're poor. They're you know they're trying to to provide for their own family, and they took from me to do that. They're still going to jail, and they need to go to jail. But I don't have to carry around hating them for the rest of my life either. I don't need to. Why not? Well, because I'm not crazy. <laughs> but that's the point. Okay, so there are li- of course there are lines. Of course. Charles Manson? No, I don't, I don't have any Rahmanis. But I have, I have a degree of Rahmanis for people who are mentally ill. And, and that we live in a world where people's hardwiring goes crazy and or is twisted by what people do to them. And that, I have a degree of Rahmanis about. That's as far as I'm willing to go. I think it goes back to what you were saying about balancing the one and the other. Right. And that it's not all the one and Correct. it's not all the other, but that uh, the Jewish tradition recognizes that they kind of are in relationship. conflict, but they're in relationship with each other. And there are times when the scale tips a little bit more to one side than the other, but we can't forget the one side and just, you know, there's this thing about justice is blind. To Jews, justice is not blind. That's why we have judges and not computers. That's no, why we that's have right. And that's the, the legal system also does that, and that's why there is the compulsory sentence is not that. That's the law. But when the sentences are given by judges, when it's not compulsory, we assume the judge takes an account of the situation. Right. Mm-hmm. There's something about hating the behavior, but not the person. So that's one tool to move towards rachamim, yeah. right? Towards compassion and empathy is that's a set of behaviors, you know, but this is a human being, right? And, and, and differentiating between those is one path mm-hmm. to cultivating compassion. What is the definition of pain grace? I don't know. <laughs> Any help? I think what we talk about the unearned mercy. So, anybody want to help translate grace? Breathing while we sleep. <laughs> so the question was, could I translate chain grace? 
Like, unpack that. A state of is different from the panel definition? Right. I mean, state of grace is more of a. I don't. I don't know how to. I don't know how to translate grace. Does anybody have a better word? I don't. I mean, grace feels really clear to me. Grace feels super clear to me. I have no idea what grace means. Right. So, so I can you help me? What are some Content, other words? A complete. It's no, it's being funny. given. Uh, it's, it has to do with mercy too. It's what you get. It's related. I think it's related to compassion and mercy. Yes, mm-hmm. but it's the feeling as a result of that. State. This is this is on God's part. It's not a feeling. Right. It's a it's, it's a verb. But, but I think in the Christian sense, it is a feeling. I don't think so. God's grace is what is given. Yes. God God gives God's grace. God gracifies. So it's a verb it? and it's a noun. And it, right here, it's a verb. God is God is doing something, or not? I mean, it's an intransitive verb, right? It's kindness. Kindness. No, it's, God, it's Kind of relates to forgive. In Christianity, I think it's it's definitely related to forgiveness, but not not here. Maybe there's not. I mean, we get we get again. forgiven because God has chen and rachamim for sure. That's how we get forgiven. We don't earn forgiveness, right? Out of God's chen and rachamim, God forgives. But it's yeah. So you get grace from God's mercy. Sort of, but, but here, here, mercy and grace are, are both given. used the same way about God doing them. Maybe there's no word for that either. Let's drop this. Do we have any synonyms? Christian. I mean, when we Christian belief, the free and un. Uh, unmerited favor of God has manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. Okay, so so if we take out the forgiveness of sinners, I mean, even though that works here in, in a certain context, it is about the unearned bestowing of goodness, of, of blessing, of favor. Of, is it received? It's the giving, not the receiving. Correct. The big question to me is not what is grace, but what is our response. So that's How do we, that's a conversation. That's blessing. Um, unearned is a really important part of this whole thing, I think. Because it says one of the definitions: an unmerited divine assistance yeah. given humans for so their blessing. Like yeah. I think it's related to, to blessing, first, to favor. I have, I'm very familiar with how pain is used in Yiddish, and it's totally different. Maybe there's something in it, and what it is, is a kind of winningness. Winningness? has such a winning way. So this is a child that evokes grace. That evokes love and interest. Yes, from people. Yes. This is a child that it is easy to feel chen for. It is easy to have chen for this child. Right, right, is lovable. 
is lovable, is, right? It makes perfect sense to me, right? That this is a, a kid who's Rachmanidik. Ah, okay. So let's go a little further because this is the end. We're, this is it. Like, we're not, we're not going past here. So, um, so we're almost at the end of our text. And then we're, <laughs> I know. But I, I let you today. I, I was completely aware the whole time. I, often I'm not, but I was completely aware today um, that I allowed that. You had I had Rahmanis. Um, because this is all the text we're doing, right? And so why not dig in as far as we want to because we're not going past this. And it's important, I think, to understand, to understand this because it, it seems important to God to communicate this. So Moshe's is, asking, let me know you. And this is what God says. That's why I spend so much time on it. Because our tradition is suggesting that this is what's important to the divine. In God's self-description. This is God's self-disclosing. That's impo- that seems critically important to me. We don't get that a lot. God tells us what to do. We don't get a lot of God saying, this is who I am. We get things like, eh yeah, asher, eh yeah. As an answer. I will be what I will be. Like, really, you know, this is an answer. He, this is God, the character of God, answering Moshe's question. Answering Moshe's request. You want to know me? All right. It's something about chen and something about rachamim. And what else? Tov. I'm going to cause all my tov to pass before you. Right? So there, it's about goodness. Okay? So those seem important. And Tov is what God said in creating the world. Absolutely. God sees the world and says Tov. So and why is this special for Passover? We're going to get there. I'm telling you. We're going to get there. But hang with me. All right. Vayomer. Lotuchal. Lirot. And God says, you, you cannot see me, my face. Because a person cannot see me vachai and live. Vayomer Adonai, hine makom iti. And God says to Moshe, here's a makom, here's a place, iti, with me. Venitzavta al hatzul. This nitzav, remember, we've had this word before. You know, erectify yourself, like, you know, to, to really stand firm. Atem nitzavim kulchem hayom. All y'all stand here today, right? It's about. Really standing. So God says, I want you to come be. Stand and be here. Al-Hatsur, on the rock. And it will be that when my kavod passes, right? Passes. The samticha. And I will put you in a crag in the rock. Visakoti kapi alecha, and I will protect you with, with my. Uh, what is this called? Palm. 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 With, the, with my palm on you. Ad ovri, until I have passed. Right? Bahasiroti et kapi, and I will take away my hand. Viraita et achorai. And you will see my. Huh? What's behind me? Good. So, good. You're going to see Achorai. I'm not going to translate it yet. Ufanai lo ye ra'u. 
but my face, y'all can't see. All right. Evidence. Ah, so, so what did you just say, Rita? Because achar, achar has many meanings. Achar usually means after. So you will see. Achorai, you will see my afterwards, my aftermath. I like to use the term wake, right? How do you know a boat's just come through? You, so I imagine, I mean, I watch and read a lot of science fiction, so um, you will see the disturbance in the field, right? You'll, you'll see my wake, my after. Like hmm? the wind. Like the wind. Like That's the how wind. you know air is moving. Is it right? You, we experience it as wind. So, it's like footprints in the sand. Or you footprints in there. the sand. Somebody was there. Somebody walked there. A shadow. All of these things are ways at hinting at this word achar. I don't like back because it's too anthropomorphic. Yes, it's too physical. And it's way too physical. I don't think it gets nearly at the Hebrew. And I'm not saying it's totally wrong, but, but I don't, it, it does not come close to, I think, the Hebrew's trying to describe what you can't describe. It, it, this is way too anthropomorphic. It's not a and yes, of course, it's, it's my face you can't see, but you can see my achar. But I don't think, and so I can understand how you might say you can't see my face, but you can see my back. Okay, I get it. But... But I think the Hebrew is doing something much subtler in saying you can't see my face directly and live. It doesn't say you can't see my face, does it? It says a person can't see my face v'chai and live. But you can see my achar. Well, what is passing by is kavod. God's kavod. kavod. It's not a physical thing. Correct, which is why I don't like back, right? Because God's going to cause God's tov to pass by. God's kavod is going to pass. Kavod doesn't have a back, right? Have you seen those translations where it says, you know, if you will see the back of my neck? It's like, what? Like, it almost be comforting to, to say you will not see my face and live because the comfort in that you will be joining God when you die and seeing him. So say that one more time. When you say you cannot see my face and live, maybe it's not a negative thing because you will be joining God and being with him and seeing him when you die. Okay, so stop even... If we don't even use the word negative and positive, now tell me what you were saying. Because <laughs> you're trying to convince me this isn't a bad thing. I never said this was a bad thing. Oh, okay. No, no, or no, a negative I, thing. I'm just Cause seeing that it isn't it, necessary. I personally am It's not a bad thing. Now bad tell me thing. what you were saying. You're unpacking this. That perhaps there is an afterlife, or perhaps there is some way that you join with God when you die, that you will perhaps see him. You can't see me and stay alive, alive the way you are now. If you see my face, you will no longer be high. But you will be in another realm, perhaps. So I believe that's what this means. 
I believe that's what this means. Not about death. I don't think this is about death. I think, I mean, it might be. But I think what it's saying is, you cannot handle me. You can't handle taking me on face to face. It will destroy you as high. Now, maybe you become, what do you call it? Um, uh, When you achieve... Maybe you transcend, like... What are what are you? What, what happens when people become completely en- enlightened? A nirvana. Um, so whatever that, whatever that word is that I can't find in the like vocabulary, in my brain, um, th- that's maybe what happens. But that's not high, right? That's not that's not a normal life. It's beyond human. It, it's beyond high. It's beyond. Life as we know it. And that's not the goal. That's why this is not negative. It's not the goal for you to see me face to face and change. It's your job to hide. Now what happens after that? Who knows? Right? But your job is to hide. Your job is to live. Not to seek nirvana. That's not for you as a human being. You're supposed to live. That means you can experience my ahar, right? And it doesn't mean I'm not in relationship to you. It means I love you, and I'm going to protect your high. I'm going to protect your life, because you have work to do, right? Moses has a job to do. And yes, maybe God wants to be with Moses, and we know that that Moses dies with the kiss of God. So yes, maybe the most intimate thing in the world that could happen to Moshe would be to experience God face to face. But God is saying, then you can't hide. I love you. I want. I I imagine with all this chen and rachamim going on, God is saying, I love you. So I'm going to protect you from me. I'm going to protect you from the full experience of me because you can't stand that. And be a normal human being. You must live. You must live. And this is a very Jewish text to me. We are not looking for union with the divine. We are looking to be close to God. And in relationship to God. We are not looking to unify with God. We are not looking to transcend our human experience. That is a very Jewish text to me. So we're looking to experience God yes. in his life. Yes. We know yes. When we see the aftermath and we see the experiences of God, we see And when we and, experience Chain and, and do the work and Rachamim. And we must always be looking for Achar. We must always be looking for where was God in this? But we are not looking to transcend this. That is not Jewish. We're looking to walk in God's ways. We are looking to walk in God's ways in this world, in this life, in this body. Not to see God face to face and become one or, you know, or whatever happens when that happens, right? That, that might be lovely. And hopefully there is something like that that happens after this life. But as Jews, our job is to live this life in light of the fact that we are given chen and rachamim by a loving, just, compassionate God. And what does that call forth from us? Which is what Bert was saying earlier. What does that call, what does that mean for how I live this life? 
It changes how I live this life if I believe I have been given chen and rachamim by a source that could snuff me out like that. Right? It, it, it humbles one. It also gives you a mission. It gives you a mission, makes us hopeful. Makes us active. Thankful, hopefully. Thankful, hopefully. Grateful. It's what blessings are about. Changes everything if I understand myself as being the recipient of chen and rachamim from a force that created the entire universe and could wipe it out in a second. This is not a Buddhist thought. This is no, <laughs> I, absolutely not. I think lahavdil, lahavdil. It is the exact opposite exactly. of the impulses of many traditions. And I'm not saying the impulse isn't here. It is. The impulse, the impulse has always been there for human beings to want the, di- the divisions to fall away and for us to experience mystical union. I, I know that, and I'm not denying that. Normative Judaism says you can have moments of that and moments of experiencing that kind of thing, but that's not the goal. Right? We don't have monasteries. <laughs> Why don't we have monasteries? Because the, the goal is not to go sit somewhere and, and pray all day and experience it. Which, don't get me started on, <laughs> on, on, on Cheder and you know, those who are studying Torah all day long and not doing anything out in the world. I think that's exactly the opposite of what normative Judaism has always said. Right? Is that we don't have monasteries because... Because you're being close to God and grooving on that 24-7 doesn't do anything in the world. It doesn't contribute to your life being a full life. It doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be um, constantly seeking an experience of contact and closeness with the divine. But it means so that we can live. Wasn't there one sect of asceticism that was wiped out finally, or was, or maybe not? Say, say that again. There was a sect of asceticism, uh-huh. which was looked down upon, and and still is. You mean Jewish asceticism? Yes, Jewish asceticism. Yes, always. There's that impulse. Always, always. There's a name for the sect, and I don't remember. What so, the name so there's always that, and 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 that's what's happening, right? For all the people sitting in yeshiva all day long. Um, and and I and so the 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 trick is so so what where's the balance between wanting to spend one's life pursuing spiritual um, experiences? Where's the balance between that and living a life that we feel is contributing right to to a better world, to a better society, and, th- and that's a tricky balance and. We don't always get it right. But we know we have it in this life, and that's what we know as Jews, whereas other religions might say, well, everything you do is for the afterlife. All we know is that we have this, this life. life as we are, as God said, in the way you are to carry God, to experience God. Yes. 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 We... We have hope and faith and trust and all that. That's something. That's something else. But we don't. We, don't, we, know we don't focus on it, unless and until things get really bad. We have to do well in this life. Exactly. This and when things are terrible in this life, we see a lot of Jewish writings on the afterlife. Just like every other religion, Christianity focuses on the afterlife. Why? Because it was such crap for them, yes. R- right? And it was a religion of peasants whose lives were horrible. So um, every time 
reality here is terrible, writings get more popular about olam haba, the world to come, right? And our reward will be in the world to come. Um, so it's there, and the impulse is there, but I think the corrective is here and has always been here and, and saves us in many ways and makes us who we are. It makes us, look, we're, we're two-tenths of one percent of the world's population, people. Two-tenths of a percent. We're not even one percent. Two-tenths of a percent of the world's population and look what we've contributed to the world. Why do you think that is? I believe it's because of this. We take, life we take this life very seriously and that we are to bring the divine into this world, into this life. It's not separate. And if there's an olam haba, terrific. If there's a world to come, that's great. The rabbis say, if you live a good life here, you don't need to worry about olam haba. <laughs> Quit, don't focus on it. What, there's nothing you can do. Just live a good life. Olam haba will take care of itself. Right? You, you can't get dressed once you're in front of the queen. <laughs> That's what the rabbis say. You have to prepare yourself in the antechamber. Right? Yeah. Fix your hair and your makeup before you're presented before the throne. Right? right? And so don't worry about it. When it's time to see the king, right? Yeah. If you've done everything you're supposed to do, you're ready. Okay. Enough. Right? And so now go do... Yeah. Go make your Shabbos dinner and go, <laughs> go raise your children with Rahmanis and Chayn and, right? and treat other people that way and create a society that's reflective of that. All right, we're finally going to get to somebody's question. <laughs> Rabbi Rami Shapiro dropped to the final paragraph on the first page. Now the obvious question is, yes, you see it? Yeah. Yep. Now the obvious question is, what does this verse and the whole story of Moshe's desire for a revelation of God's presence have to do with Pesach? <laughs> See, trust me, I will always, I will always get there. You promised. I promised. On the most basic level, this story uh, is a lead up to some verses which speak of the festival of Matzot. But there must be more going on. Taking a step back, this whole section of the Torah is about rejecting idolatry. From the story of the golden calf through the commandments Moshe receives after the revelation of God's attributes. In a sense, Moshe wants the same thing that the Israelites wanted when they built their golden calf in chapter 32. He wants a visible, palpable sense of God's presence. A concrete image he could comprehend and carry with me. No go, says God. You will only know me or you will know me only by apprehending my merciful attributes and qualities, not by seeing me directly. Not only that, but God warns Moshe sternly about following the religious practices of the neighboring tribes and then tells Moshe and the Israelites that they must celebrate the holidays, the first being the festival of Matzot. So the f one of the first things that people are going to have to do is now enter into a different relationship to time. Right? They're... Now they're going to have moed. They're going to have special times. Okay? What is the first special time, moed, they're going to have? Pesach. Pesach. Remember? Pesach was the beginning of the year. And it's certainly the first holiday that happens after they leave Egypt. To me, the idea of idolatry, says Rabbi Rami Shapiro, is not so much about bowing down before an image, but about arrogance, of thinking that one knows it all of thinking there's nothing higher or beyond our own ideas and conceptions and creations. 
Pesach is a direct antidote to arrogance. We scrub our houses for chametz, which is often understood to represent puffed up pride and self-centeredness, and we know we'll never get it all. The laws and customs of Pesach are rich and complex, and there's something new to learn every year, every Seder can be a different experience with new conversations, new questions, new insights. Conversely, we can make the holiday itself an idol by thinking we know it all, been there, done that. Somebody who doesn't learn something new every year at Pesach or who thinks they've done the holiday in an absolutely perfect way isn't getting the message at all, right? So Rami's saying, I see the story of Moshe and the second tablets as a lovely metaphor for the attitude of humility and openness that is the opposite of the idolatry we've been talking about. Moshe's told, you do your part by carving the tablets, put some effort into preparing a space, and God will enter that space. God doesn't hand it to us, carved in stone, as it were. And neither are we to write our own law, but something in the middle, with God and humans meeting and reaching for each other. Pesach, like the second tablets, takes some effort. The reward is learning God's ways in new and ever deeper ways if we are truly open. Amen. So this idea that Pesach is about, that, we, that, that Moshe wants the same thing the people wanted. Right. It's no different. Right? They, they wanted it and so they made a calf. Moshe wants the same thing. Show me. I, I need to see something. And God says, it's the wrong question. What do I look like? Show me. It's the wrong request. You want to know me? No chain. No rachamim. No tov. You're asking, your, your paradigm is completely wrong because the impulse, right, is, is show me so I can see. And there's an arrogance in that, I think is what Rami is hinting at. That when we can be humble enough to say it's so much bigger than I can possibly understand or, or withstand see. or see, it's so much bigger than that. That's when we get it. That's when we're open. That's when we apprehend. That's when we get it. That's when we know God. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.